There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In 1629, a boy called Christian Huygens was born in The Hague in the Dutch Republic. Living until the age of 66, Huygens' life coincided with the period that historians in retrospect called the Scientific Revolution. Though few of us may know Huygens' name, today's guest argues that there was no mere coincidence in Huygens' life coinciding with this period of scientific experimentation. In fact, Though he wouldn't have known the word scientist, Huygens would grow up to become the greatest scientist alive in Europe between Galileo and Isaac Newton. His discoveries and inventions drove the scientific revolution and helped prepare the ground for the Enlightenment. Newton and later Albert Einstein would admire and acknowledge their debts to Huygens' work, and he was recognised in his own lifetime with the accolade of becoming the first foreign member of the Royal Society of London. In 2005, 310 years after his death, a European Space Agency craft parachuted through the atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan, the moon that had been named by Huygens after discovering it with a telescope that he created, and the craft was fittingly named after the man himself. To learn more about the life and works of this remarkable man, I'm joined today by author and journalist Hugh Aldersley-Williams. A fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, Hugh is the author of many books exploring science, design and architecture, including Tide, Periodic Tales, Anatomies and The Adventures of Sir Thomas Brown in the 21st Century. And he's curated exhibitions at the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Wellcome Collection. His latest book is Dutch Light, Christian Huygens and the Making of Science in Europe. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm so pleased that you could make the time to talk about this fascinating man. Thank you very much, Susanna. It's great to be here. 
Now, I wouldn't normally ask a guest to give an overview of the topic or the person that's the focus of the podcast, the very top of that podcast. But in Christian Huren's case, I think we need to make an exception because I suspect physicists aside, although I think they call him Huygens, not many people have heard of him. So would you mind by starting by giving us a sort of outline of the areas of study that he was involved with and some of his achievements? He was the most notable scientist. They weren't called scientists then, of course, but natural philosopher between Galileo and Newton, certainly in his major fields, which are astronomy and physics and mathematics. So he was busy in all those fields. He was also an inventor and speculated about extraterrestrial life as well. So he was very focused on physical sciences, but with some imagination thrown in. And I'd like to clarify that question of terms, because as you say, Mm. scientist wasn't a word that existed at the time. But for the purposes of this conversation, should we call him a scientist or a polymath or a natural philosopher? Um, Certainly is a polymath, but few people put that on their business card, as it were. So it seems (laughs) immodest to call him that. He's an astronomer and inventor, I think. You've got to use both of those because he had great achievements in both those areas. Now, let's get a sense of who he was in terms of his upbringing. You mentioned that Wilhelm's father's a huge force in his life, not just when he was little, actually, but throughout. Can you tell me something about that relationship and why it was so important for his work and achievements? You're right, it's hugely important, and I didn't know about the importance of it until I got stuck into this project. I started off with the complete works of Christian Huygens and his scientific achievements. But his father was very interested in scientific questions. His father was a diplomat and poet and composer and had deep and many varied interests. And the particularly important thing is that he lived almost as long as Christian lived. Constantine, his father, died in 1687 and Christian died in 1695, so only eight years later. So the father was an influence on his son's life, as he was on all his children's lives throughout them. And he was always trying to steer the family, use the family as a network. Because he was a professional diplomat, he was very aware of the advantages that would bring and Christian science undoubtedly gained from just being able to talk to people and making connections whenever opportunity presented itself. And I'm sure all that came from his father. The father was also interested in pretty much everything. He was definitely interested in scientific questions. On one of his early diplomatic missions, he came to London and met with Francis Bacon, who was then rather long in the tooth and not very rewarding company, according to Huygens' own account. But nevertheless, he wanted to meet that great proto-scientist. He met a Dutch scientist who was living in London at that time called Cornelis Drebbel, a great inventor who demonstrated a submarine under the Thames for James I. And then later on in his life, he built friendships, scientific relationships with Descartes. He and Descartes worked on trying to design the perfect lens together. He had a correspondence with Margaret Cavendish about these things called Prince Rupert's Tears, which were little glass drops that were made in a particular way. They were shaped like tadpoles and they had the curious property that if you bang the bulbous end, they were pretty much indestructible. But if very gently you just snapped off the tip of the tail, they would explode violently. 
and people were very baffled as to how glass could do these sort of very different things within the one small artefact. So you've introduced us to the idea of his connections, but what do we know of his early education or training? Was there ever any doubt that Huggins would go on to become this inventor, this astronomer? Christian, at his father's behest, received a very wide-ranging education in mathematics and theology and languages, ancient and modern, and fencing and music and all the other kind of social skills that he would need. But he was early on found to be strong in mathematics and those kinds of inquiring subjects, and the appropriate tutors were hired to address that. Both his father and his tutors were a bit irritated by the distraction he found for himself of forever making little sort of working gadgets that they thought was just time-wasting and so on, but obviously was formative for Christian's later work in designing pendulum clocks and so on that we'll talk about, I expect. Now, you've called your book Dutch Light, which is a wonderful way of describing the context that helped shape Christian's work. Can you say some more about this Dutch Light and its importance? Yes, I suppose I started off with a slightly naive hope that the Dutch light, whatever that was, in inverted commas, would be something that had triggered all this brilliance on Christian's part. I also had an idea about the sand of the Dutch dunes being used to make telescopes, being somehow uniquely suited to making telescopes, because the telescope was invented in Holland in 1608 or so, it's contested. So there was a lot of optical science as well as science of other thoughts going on in Holland in the first half of the 17th century. And that was also a time when they're doing a lot of surveying work as well, which required geometry and mathematics, which connects with optics. And the survey work was informing digging of dikes and poldering and the reorganisation of where the water was and where the land was across the country. And there are theories that artists and others have come up with much more recently that has altered the reflectivity of the land, of the Earth's surface locally. And so within the sky, you get maybe a different quality of light, a brighter light, but also a sort of diffuse light, not a harsh light like Southern European light, but a northern light that is bright, but still not harsh. So there may be something in that, something the jury's probably still out. But nevertheless, there was more to do with reasons of migration and trade and increasing national wealth and so on. There was a lot of work going on in the science, moving up through Flanders and into Holland during that time. I love that idea, though, that what he achieved in the sciences is born of the landscape he's in. And we talk about artists in St Ives or... Parts of France where we talk about the light affecting how they work, but that actually that this is informing his work in these forms of invention and ways of seeing is a really nice way of connecting up a person's context to what they produce. I should describe the house he lived in the latter part of his life, which he inherited from his father. His father built two houses during his lifetime. One was a very grand house in The Hague, which did used to stand next door to the Maritz house, which was lived in by Prince Maritz, and it was, even, if anything, even grander. But there was an out-of-town house a few kilometres away on a canal, and this was a much more modest square cubic brick house 
rather than a grand stone one with sort of statues across the pediments and so on. So it's a small brick house square, but it stands in a moat in a garden laid out on Vitruvian principles, the human form with each part of the garden and the house itself having meaning. But this house is entirely moated, and so you're getting this light reflected up into the house all the time off the water that surrounds it. So he was very connected with that kind of idea. And if we continue to think about context, there's a lovely phrase in your work where you say that the Dutch Republic was soaked in ink and paint, not least thanks to the incredible Dutch masters, of course we know Rembrandt and Franz Hals and others, and the prolific printing trade. Reading Christian's notebooks, you found that he was reflecting this culture, that he was drawing many visualisations of his ideas. Why do you think those visualisations are important? How did they set him apart from other people working in these areas at the time? A lot of scientists use doodles, diagrams to help them think. And especially if you're working in optical science, that's very helpful. If you're closely connected with people doing surveys and mapping, you're obviously thinking about the layout of things all the time. So this becomes part of Christian's natural equipment. He certainly learns to draw and paint when he's at college in Leiden. He, in fact, does some very nice chalk sketches after Rembrandt. His father more or less discovered Rembrandt and was responsible for giving him his early commissions. So there's a very close connection with the art world. And it's a completely sort of natural, organic connection. It's not conscious arts and sciences dichotomy like we have today. So visualising things is part of Christian's mental equipment. And he draws optical diagrams. He solves mathematical problems by geometrical means, which is a traditional ancient Greek method. But it's in the very last days of this kind of method being popular because calculus of Leibniz and Newton is about to come along and we'll do it with letters and numbers in the future. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between Christian and Isaac Newton, who was, of course, much younger than Christian Hürgens, because we know they discussed ideas. We know that Newton sent his Principia Mathematica to Hürgens for a critical review, but they didn't see quite eye to eye, did they? In layman's terms, could you <laughs> outline the differences between them? Yeah, so Christian was born in 1629. Newton was born in 1646, I think. I can't remember for sure. So he's yeah half a generation younger. 1670s, when Newton's publishing his theories on light, in 1680s, when he's publishing Principia Mathematica, Newton is the junior scientist, less well-known less reputed across the continent than Huggins. And Huggins is one of the very few people that Newton respects the opinion of. And so he does consult with Huggins both on light and later with the ideas on gravity and the motion of bodies in the Principia. And he does it in a typically Newtonian way where he asks what he thinks and Haugen says what he thinks and suggests some revisions and stuff. And Newton, as surreptitiously as he possibly can, incorporates the good stuff and ignores everything and gives Haugenness no credit for having contributed in this way. There's a story that illustrates their relative sort of positions quite well that is just after, in quotes, glorious revolution of 1688 when William III lands in Devon and marches up to London and government and so on changes. 
Shortly after that, Newton seeks a meeting with the king because he wants, in addition to his various other posts as Fellow of Trinity and an MP and things, he wants to become the provost of King's College, Cambridge. And to get this audience, he prevails upon Christian Huygens and Christian's brother Constantine, who is the secretary of William III. And so the four of them have a meeting at Hampton Court where Newton asks for this particular preferment that he wants. And that's shortly after Howlands and Newton have actually met for the first time at a meeting of the Royal Society. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Newton met Hans. What was Hans known for? What by this point had he achieved? You've mentioned optics, you've mentioned the pendulum. Can you give us a bit of an idea? I should say a bit more about what he did. This is going way back now because we're in 1689 or so with this meeting between these men. Hans is Annus Mirabilis, if there were several, but the greatest of them was probably around 1658. And shortly before that, in fact, he'd used his telescope to discover the first moon of Saturn, that's Titan. And the year after that, he used a twice as powerful telescope, both of his own design and making, grinding his own lenses and so on, to discover the rings of Saturn, or at least to explain the rings of Saturn, to get enough resolution with his telescope to see the rings clearly, to be able to work out what they were. There are lots of 
And we were talking about this visualising. They obviously draw what they see through telescopes. There are lots of drawings by different astronomers of what they saw through their inadequate telescopes, seeing this sort of blurry blob shape that changed year after year around Saturn because, as Huygens realised, it was a broad ring that alters in its tilt as seen from Earth. So sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. And so what Huygens did brought together his visualising and his mathematical brain because you need to be able to think of a shape that is physically and mathematically sensible, a symmetrical shape rather than some of these crazy sort of outlying blobs that people had as an idea of what it was that might surround Saturn. So a ring had the sort of symmetry and the plausibility that some of these other theories lacked. Those were his principal astronomical achievements. And in that same period, the late 1650s, he also greatly improved or perfected the pendulum clock, which had been conceived more or less by Galileo, worked on by Galileo's son, but never quite finished. And Huygens found a way to improve its accuracy by a factor of 10 or something, so that it might be accurate to within minutes a day rather than an hour or two, which is obviously not much use. So it became a useful piece of equipment. Clockmakers everywhere started making them as fast as they could, including ripping off his improvement. And this idea that clocks were suddenly usefully accurate gives a big impetus to the idea of trying to solve the longitude problem so that ships at sea could know how far around the Earth they were from reading an accurate clock and comparing it with when they'd set off and so on. So that was his other main achievement, the clock as well as the Saturn work. So that's way before this meeting with Newton, 30 years before. And then later, he has other achievements in mathematics. He has a lot of work on probability, building on work by Pascal and Fermat and people he's met in Paris when he went to Paris first. In physics, he develops the first sort of fully worked out wave theory of light. This is something that is lost for about 150 years because of the apparent success of Newton's particle theory of light. It can't be proved for a long time, nevertheless it is right, his wave theory of light. He's active in music like his father. He devises his 31-tone scale of music that is intended to sound more pleasing than other scales. A lot of people are working on equal temperament and mean temperament and the rules of Western music, how that should be done. He got himself a keyboard built that demonstrated this principle and so on. It is extraordinary that one person should achieve things in quite so many different areas and... I'm sure part of that is just not seeing the divisions between those things in the way that we do. Yeah, I think you're right. You said polymath at the beginning, and he certainly is a polymath. But as I said, it's not something you put in your business card, and it's not a sort of self-conscious thing. I think the 17th century is such a time when people still thought they could understand everything. And if you like because disciplines hadn't been defined and so on. They thought they had a right to ask questions about everything and investigate everything. That's why I find it such a fascinating period. It's just before science gets really organised. And the reason I 
found myself including so much about Christian's father, Constantine, was that he stands just slightly before science is organised. So he's interested, he's got questions about comets and glass beads that explode and all this stuff, but he doesn't really know how to do the experiments or find the right people to talk to to solve the problems. And then Christian is just over that cusp on the other side. And he, to my mind, is really one of the very first professional scientists. I mean, yes, he's doing astronomy and inventing clocks and doing wave theory, physics and so on. But it's all proper science, if you like. And he's not messing around with alchemy and strange theological ideas like Newton or looking for preferment in other fields. Admittedly, he's bankrolled by his father and helped greatly by his father's connections. But science is his focus, to use an optical word. Yeah, and I was thinking Metier because you mentioned him going to Paris. I was astounded to learn that Louis XIV put Huron's on an annual pension, along with leading literary figures like Molière, Racine. So he's the first scientist, we're embracing the word now, to be employed by the nation. And he went on, of course, to found the French Academy of Sciences. How did he come to the notice of the king? And what do you think he did for the French nation whilst he was in the king's employment? He went to Paris first in 1660. And this was shortly after his work with the clock and the Saturn work. And these were obviously great calling cards for him. And got him very established quickly in leading scientific salons, which weren't necessarily all that scientific and didn't really focus on the right sort of problems and were more talking shops in many ways. And he was a big hit in Paris, made lots of friends who lobbied for him in the subsequent years when he went away for a few years back to Holland and came to the attention of Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who was the 14th Minister of pretty much everything, and who was ambitious to set up these academies of this, that and the other. He set up all sorts of academies and the Science Academy was one of those. And he was, amazingly, perhaps not particular that leading lights in this scientific academy should be French. And I think perhaps saw in Christian, in a Dutchman, if you like, to be stereotypical about it, someone who had a sort of practical mindset, as well as being a very sound mathematician and physicist, an astronomer with this record of discoveries and achievements, was someone who could be asked and could be relied upon to focus on practical problems. Practical problems weren't always that practical. There was a lot of work went into doing the waterworks on fancy fountains at Versailles and so on. But nevertheless, that's physical problem solving. Huggins was able to do that kind of thing. And so when this academy came to be set up, Huggins was de facto director of the thing. He set its first programme of research and came up with a list of three dozen items of things that it should be working toward, many of which unsurprisingly coincided rather closely with his own interests. And off they went. And this was at the same time and in consciousness of close rivalry with the Royal Society. And there was a sort of sense, I think, that the Royal Society must be massively bankrolled by Charles II. And in England, there was a sense that the French Academy must be massively bankrolled by Louis XIV, neither of which were quite true, I don't think. But they nevertheless, they drove each other sort of forward for a little bit in that way. Did Herrens have any other connections to other European monarchies in this period, or is it really only with the French? 
Not so much monarchies, although I suppose with his father being diplomat and so on, often the connections may have got made that way in the first case. But he did have correspondence with the Linceo in Florence, with astronomers particularly there. He corresponded with a Polish or German, I'm not sure what you call him, astronomer Hevelius. He's certainly spent some time in London and worked with and in rivalry with as well a lot of English and Irish and Scottish scientists. So yes, there were those connections across Europe. Leibniz came to him for mathematics tutoring when he was in Paris. The learning gets passed on that way too. And what's all the more remarkable about his connections across Europe is that he is operating a time which is a period of great religious turmoil, political warfare, you know, global crisis, not least in climate change. Can you give some sense of how, in the context of all this, Hohen's managed to transcend all this turmoil? Yes, like most of his peers, they try to ignore it as much as possible. These people are aware that there's more to be gained by talking to each other and comparing notes on experiments they've done than there is by shouting at each other and ignoring each other. And so they do collaborate and they do correspond. And sometimes a letter is opened and it looks like code and might be of military significance and therefore it's intercepted and lost. Things like this happen. Strange looking instruments might get investigated and the people unpacking them don't know what they are and something falls between the cracks then. But so far as they could, these people tried to continue working. I should mention Henry Oldenburg, who was the sort of, not quite his title, but the Foreign Secretary of the Royal Society. And it was his job to facilitate these contacts between British and Irish scientists and their peers on the continent. And he was an intermediary for Huygens to Newton and many others. And he spent a lot of his job translating and getting papers together for the transactions of the Royal Society and also coaxing people and defusing rows that Tetchy scientists were having and so on by being this kind of intermediary. But it's between these nations, principally in Huygens' case, England and France and Holland, all of which at various points during his career are mutually at war for various different ways and times. France invades Holland, England and Holland have the Anglo-Dutch wars and so on. So there is a tension between them. Oldenburg was briefly locked up at Tower of London because of his dodgy looking correspondence. The scientists sometimes corresponded in anagrams. So if you wanted to, before journals and peer review and all that sort of stuff about the codified announcement of discoveries there wasn't quite an agreed way as to how to do this and so one way to do it was to put your discovery in an anagram and send it to someone you trusted and then you'd be able to tell them later what the anagram decoded meant and therefore that would be your claim of priority with the date of that letter as to when you'd made that discovery and you could show you'd come before someone else so Huggins's discoveries about Saturn were announced in that way and he had a big dispute with Robert Hooke about some of the clockwork innovations and Huggins was able to suggest that he'd come up with this innovation before Hooke had but nonetheless there was a lot of bitterness in that row there. Can we talk a bit about his personality because it seems that he had his portrait painted many times in 1670s, 1680s 
And this is very interesting. I mean, you've mentioned the connection of his father to Rembrandt, so perhaps that explains it in part. But what is really interesting is that whilst he is shown dressed very fashionably, he doesn't have what so many early modern portraits have, which is symbols about their sitter's background or their achievements or their interests. So there's no clues about his work there. Mm. On the other hand, you know, in his final months, he's bequeathing to the Royal Society all of his work, suggesting that he knows that what he's done is significant. What do you make of his personality? I think the portraits were probably not much more than you'd expect from a man who had grown up in a dynasty of diplomats and was very connected in a land where there was a lot of portrait painting going on. So I think the context in which Christian Haugen's had his portraits painted was pretty much the same as the ones in which his father had his portrait painted, of which there were also quite a few examples, because they could, because they had the wealth, and the demonstration of scientific sort of folder all around them wasn't important in that context. The main portrait of Haugen's, which I think was painted in about 1672, is amazingly flouncy. He's got this most extravagant wig and these hugely glittering, shiny clothes and the fanciest lace you can imagine, and so on. And so it's very much the diplomat's son, I think, the spoilt son, if you like, perhaps. And he had another portrait painted just after his father died, which he said, or it was said of it by a family member, that it was his portrait in orphan rags after his father's death. And even then, he still looks pretty smart. Rags are all relative, I suppose. Can you tell me something about his religious faith and indeed why he lost it in his later years? I don't really know how much he ever had it. I suspect he went along with his family to Calvinist services. These would have been in Holland. He certainly went to Mass when he was close to the court in Paris because he talks about seeing Louis XIV from a distance there. So he does those things. He doesn't say much about his belief in religion until a sort of couple of paragraphs very late in his life, which are very sort of non-committal. And they don't quite doubt the existence of a god, but they certainly suggest that a god is not a sort of a human form or a big man in the sky type of god. It is much more of perhaps a sort of Spinozist vision of god, a sort of god and nature being mysteriously somehow the same idea. I should mention that he... And Spinoza knew each other. Spinoza's day job was as a lens grinder, making very fine lenses for telescopes. And sometimes the Haugenses used Spinoza's lenses. And sometimes they were working in rivalry with Spinoza, wondering what innovations Spinoza was coming up with and vice versa. So there was a connection there. I was wondering if there was a connection between those paragraphs on faith and the work of his final years, the Cosmos Theoros, the speculation about life on other planets. What was his argument in this? And do you think it does reflect that kind of questioning about whether there was a God? It's not a theological speculation. It's very much a kind of sci-fi type of idea, if you like. Obviously, he is thinking about the world or worlds beyond the Earth. And for him, those are definitely all part of the same creation. The difficulty about worlds beyond the Earth is it does inevitably raise theological questions because if there are creatures there, did God create them too? Or is there a different God for them? How does it all work? And Huggins doesn't really get into that kind of thing, which does bother some other people. And actually, that kind of idea stifled thinking about what might be 
out there beyond the earth in many ways for a long time. And as Cosmotheros is in some ways the first sort of scientifically informed speculation about extraterrestrial life and so on. But also it's more liberated than previous things. So there have been previous works. Bernard of Fontenelle is the leading example that comes along shortly before Huggins. And there are other much more ancient ones as well. His idea of what's beyond the Earth, he's quite interesting on this because he imagines that because the land and the seas and the gravity and the density of the air and these kinds of factors might be different on different planets, the creatures there will have to have different forms. And so that's a quite a modern way of thinking about the problem. But he also has conceits that are closer to home so that he thinks they must be quite like us in certain respects, They'd be curious about the heavens like us. But he reckons they wouldn't have telescopes because they couldn't possibly have telescopes as good as mine. So they must instead have incredibly superior natural eyesight because he simply can't believe that someone's telescopes would be better than his. So they're very funny kind of little blind spots that come into the thinking about that. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. Do you feel that he was, to use that cliche, married to his work? I know that he never actually married. Do we have any evidence of significant relationships in his life? He certainly focused on what he's doing. I think he would have liked more of a lasting relationship during his life than he seems to have secured. It should be remembered that his peers mostly didn't marry either. Leibniz, I mentioned, and Newton... There is scant evidence of this or that romantic interest passing through his correspondence, one or two from when he was in Paris, one occasion where he seems to have been slightly unfortunately set up with someone who was rather notorious and he realised later that he'd been duped a bit. And others later on, the daughter of engineer with whom he was collaborating and so on. But none of them led to anything that seems to be recorded. In your book, you lament the lack of memorialization of poems and especially if we compare it to the almost mythical status that newton has achieved why do you think this is what explains this probably there's a certain sort of dutch modesty and curmudgeonliness that has led to him being somewhat overlooked and not properly recorded so there were plans for a statue to Haugen's in The Hague that exhibited more than a century ago now and not proceeded with for whatever reason. So uh, there's a missed opportunity there. But more relevant from my point of view and me writing for readers in English is the sort of cult of Newton that started rising during Newton's life, really, because of Newton's own self-mythologising and then built and built through the 18th century and driven by Voltaire and people and a lot in France, surprisingly, in a way. So Newton has this astonishing monument in Westminster Abbey and his name is recorded in many ways elsewhere. And he does blot out everything else. His achievements were so great that he's obscured all that's gone before him. And that's why we don't really see Huygens in the fog. We can just about see a pinpoint further back that's Galileo. But Huygens is blocked out because he's too close to Newton in time, in a way. And also because their ideas were in conflict. So... Newton was more right about colour and light, whereas 
Huygens was more right about the wave nature of light, but that couldn't be proved at the time. They were both right about bodies in motion and mechanics and so on. Huygens was actually a bit more right about the idea of all motion being relative, which was an idea that obviously got developed by Einstein much later. But nevertheless, all through the 18th century and the 19th century, because of nationalism as well, Newton was a British scientific hero that got built up. So he rather steals all the Dutch light. (laughs) Thank you so much for introducing us to this figure and bringing him out from this huge shadow cast by Newton and giving us a sense of some of the many things that he achieved. Thanks so much for asking me. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.